Welcome to the Colon Cancer Podcast, stories of struggle, hope, and survival in the face of colorectal cancer. I'm Lee Silverstein. Welcome to episode three of the Colon Cancer Podcast. I recently had the pleasure of speaking to a wonderful woman. Sue Kadera is a nine-year survivor of colon cancer, and as I was reading through her bio, something jumped out at me. What she said was, cancer has been the most horrible and wonderful thing that has ever happened to me because it taught me how to live a life uncommon. A couple other things that she mentioned in our conversation was number one, she talked about how important it is for you to try to continue to live your life while you're going through cancer. She talked about the importance of being your own advocate for your medical care and not just blindly following whatever the first doctor tells you to do. And third, she caught my attention by talking about what she does in her spare time that brings her peace and harmony to her life. And I'll tell you that while the audio on Sue's side is a little muddled, her message, however, is crystal clear. So join me for my conversation with Sue Kadera. Sue, thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. And I was reading through your bio. You have uh, quite an interesting story. But what I'd like to start with is before we jump right into diagnosis and treatment and all that st- stuff that we are we're all dealing with. Tell tell me about you and your life uh, prior to your uh, diagnosis with colon cancer. Well, uh, I was diagnosed nine and a half years ago. Um, and uh, prior to that, at 48, age 48, and prior to that, um, I was teaching art. Uh, I was a avid runner, uh, a gardener. I'm an artist. Um, at the time that I was diagnosed, my children were, were both in college. I see, I see. And so nine and a half years ago, uh, and tell me about uh, when you realized something could possibly not be right uh, with with you, with your body, that led that uh, started the the path down to being diagnosed. Uh, I had symptoms. I had some bleeding, uh, and I I took about three months to finally get in and get a a colonoscopy. I kind of had a battle going with my my regular doctor, my um, PCP, she um, really insisted that uh, I was too young, that I didn't need a colonoscopy, that it was, you know, hemorrhoids or something else, and she was treating them with steroids, and I finally insisted, and uh, and um, it was really kind of the, the end of our relationship at that point, uh, insisted that I have a colonoscopy, and I set it up myself. From there, what happened? Um, well, at the, the, at the actual procedure, it was pretty clear that uh, I had cancer. Um, the, the doctor came in and, and said that he had found a, a tumor and that they had, you know, had biopsied it and he would let me know the next day what the results were, but he told me in the um, recovery area that uh, he, was, he was quite concerned that it was, it was cancerous. And... What was running through your head when you when you heard this? You know, what what kind of thoughts? Um, you know, I think I was completely unprepared for that news. You know, I I expected them to find some kind of hair or fissure or something. I mean, I that 
wasn't really on my radar. I mean, obviously, in the back of my mind, I was thinking about that, but um, I was pretty, pretty shocked. I mean, I was, I was pretty, I was a pretty healthy person and led a pretty healthy lifestyle, and um, I still really didn't think that it was going to come back at Millennium, but uh, but it did. The next day, he called and told me that uh, it was in fact a malignant tumor. And many people tell me that one of the biggest challenges that they face when they get diagnosed is having to share the information, share the news with their family. Uh, tell me about that time for you. I was with me when I got the call. He was with me when I had the um, the colonoscopy. So you know, he kind of waited out the night with me in anticipation of what we were going to hear. As I said, my children were away at college, and I had to call them. And of course, it was a really difficult phone call. Um, I had no plan at that point, and I really was just giving people the news. Um, I, I called my employer and said, I'm not going to be in for a while. I've got to figure out what I'm going to do. And, you know, yeah, it's, it's not, a, not an easy thing to do. Um, I think uh, having my husband there with me to do it when I had to do this with my children was really, really helpful. So what was the initial treatment plan that was prescribed for you? I had surgery, um, had about a foot of my colon removed, um, and uh, then at that point I you know, was told that it was uh, stage 3, stage 3B at the time. They, uh, you know, there were some lymph nodes involved, so uh, the plan was to follow up with adjuvant chemotherapy. There was some question about a lymph node that was near my aorta. I lit up slightly on a PET scan, so they weren't really sure what that what that was or not, but once I started chemotherapy, it just disappeared, so um, we didn't really pay that much attention to it after that. So I started a 12 on the full box, and because of this lymph node, the questionable lymph node, I also qualified to have a Vastin. At the time, the Vastin was, I think it was on expanded use um, usage. I think that was the um, the profile that, that it was. I think I got it from, from Roswell. And I qualified for that because of that. Otherwise, it would not have been a drug that I would have been able to use the first time. It was nine years ago, so. And you were NED and thinking things were looking up for you and your family for a while. And and then what happened? About a year and a half. Um, I uh, My CEA went up and went in, and, uh, and the doctor said, well, we got to got to look at this and see what's going on. It had been pretty steady up until that point, and uh, they did a, a PET scan in that same area, the lymph node near my aorta lit up. So um, the suspicion was that it probably had been cancer all along, and now it was um, recurring. And what was the pro- so what was the uh, diagnosis and treatment plan? I, I know you had some, some challenges finding... Uh, some doctors that were willing to provide the care that you were looking for. Talk, tell me more about that. Well, um, initially, you know, I had a biopsy to make sure, you know, we knew what we were dealing with. And initially, I was told by my oncologist that um, it might possibly be, I might possibly be a surgical candidate. So he sent me to a surgeon who um, kind of, uh, ruled that out completely. He said that he really didn't think that I was a surgical candidate, that it was systemic and, you know, at that point, and, uh, he didn't recommend surgery. Um, I disagreed with that. Uh, I, I really 
wanted to, to explore the idea of a cure versus, you know, because the alternative to that was going to be, you know, a lifetime of chemo. So I, um, I went back to my original surgeon, who I really liked a lot. Um, they, they had sent me to a, a surgical oncologist, my medical oncologist sent me to a surgical oncologist, which is always recommended, I think. Uh, in this case, my, my original surgeon who did my colectomy was not a, an oncologist, um, but he's a really good guy. So I went back to him and, uh, he is a, was a wonderful, humble man and he told me that, uh, he would do what, it, what he needed to do. Uh, and so I had the surgery. He did this, performed the surgery, but he had with him two vascular surgeons in the operating room. And, uh, ultimately they're the ones who did the procedure. I ended up with a, a aortic resection because the uh, tumor that was near my aorta had grown into my aorta or onto my aorta. And they, they really thought that my best chance of survival and my best chance of cure was to resect the aorta. And that's what they did. And I understand from your story that did not exactly go uh, swimmingly, that there were some cha- there were some uh, complications. Well, I wasn't going to mention it, but <laughs> prior to that, yeah, prior to that, uh, I had, had had a previous surgery where I had gone to another surgeon and uh, that he wanted to do this robotically, um, and uh, it was uh, kind of a disaster. Um, he he uh, cut my aorta by accident, and uh, so I had to heal up, and then I went, and then at that time I went back to my original surgeon, and he was the one who had the vascular surgeons do the resection. But yeah, I had a I had a sort of a botched surgery in between that first uh, opinion and that and the surgeon that actually performed it. I see. So you came through that and uh, went on about your life. And what fascinated me as I was reading your story in your bio, uh, people find ways to, to garner support. their support groups. They do yoga, meditation. You found a women's oncology rowing team. And that uh, I had not heard of such a thing. Tell me about that. Yeah, well, actually, I... I do do yoga and meditation. Those are really important things that actually I think are are part of my longevity. But yeah, this was a wonderful thing that I just sort of stumbled upon. I went to a, uh, a, a camp, a women's camp weekend, cancer camp weekend, and uh, someone was there talking about starting up this group. And uh, we initially were, were called the Naiades. We initially were part of the... Um, Camp Good Days, which is a, is a camp for children and for now for adults, they have adult programs now too. But we were initially were part of that group, that non-for-profit group when we started. Um, and then we evolved. Um, eventually we broke off and created our own non-for-profit. Uh, it's a wonderful group. I've, I rode with them off and on for the past uh, seven years. And uh, oftentimes, if I'm in, in good health, I roll competitively with them, and we do uh, races. We've done, I've even I've been lucky enough to go to the head of the Charles and the Skullkill and in Pennsylvania, and um, it's a fabulous way uh, for us to support each other. We don't always talk about cancer. We have all kinds of cancer, um, but we share that experience. And uh, what I love about it is it's almost... It's almost like a, a feeling a feeling we have when we're out there on the water. It's just a feeling of power, a feeling of togetherness. We have to row together in synchrony. 
um, all of it is, is really kind of metaphor for what we've been through. Fantastic. It sounds like that, that brings you a lot of, uh, peace and, um, you know, it sounds like a wonderful thing that uh, has a special place for you. Yeah, I've made life, lifelong friends there too. You know, really, really close. We've become really close. It's a, it's a really big part of my life. Fantastic. So your your journey just continues, unfortunately, I guess, to continue. Uh, I don't mean unfortunately. Uh, you know, you're here talking to me, and you've got this great support. But uh, you've continued to have some have some physical challenges as it relates to your diagnosis. Uh, yeah, I mean, all along, you know, while I was, uh, I had a period of time after that surgery where I was NED for about four years. Uh, I I have an issue with scar tissue where um, I've had a number of um, bowel obstructions, um, and uh, most of those have had to be re- well, they actually all have had to be resolved with surgery. I think there was only one of them where I was able to have it resolved laparoscopically. Um, I think all told, I've had four. Um, I also have had a couple of um, incisional hernias, and you know I have to admit that I'm sure the rowing doesn't help, um, and that's probably something that uh, might possibly contribute to that. But um, I've had both of those surgically um, fixed too. I also notice in your story, Sue, that there have been several incidents where you didn't accept what the physician was telling you as far as a treatment plan and you took a stand and advocated for yourself and I want to kind of get into that further. Uh, I hear so many stories from patients who express concerns through social media about what their doctor tells them but there's this real hesitancy to speak up and that does not sound like you. So talk a little bit about that. I think I credit that um, advocacy to be a, a big part of the reason why I'm still here. Um, I, I know that when you're given a, a stage four diagnosis, um, that there are some doctors that continue to talk to you about protocols, but in truth, there really aren't true protocols for someone who is, is a stage four uh, survivor. Um, I, I think that my thoughts about that um, have in some cases led to parting of the ways with a couple of oncologists that I've had. I, I had the first oncologist that I had. I I wanted to explore um, a procedure that both you and I have had called SBRT. It's a stereotactic body radiation. I had found, read about it actually from Colon Cancer Alliance and I went to him and asked him about it and he really had... Um, no opinion about it. He really didn't think it was a viable option at all. Uh, and uh, I pressed him a little further, and uh, I found out that there actually was a clinic right here in where I live where um, some of the groundbreaking work had been done in that area. So I, you know, we just didn't agree, and I, I went off pretty much on my own and went to see um, my radiologist there, who is my radiologist now there, and and formulated pretty much a new plan with a new oncologist. So, yeah, there's been a number of times when I um, kind of had my own idea of what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it. And, um, you know, it's not that I don't value medical opinion. I certainly do. I 
I often will get two or three opinions on things, but um, I really feel like I kind of know what I'm looking for and what I want um, to be the result of the treatment. And it's not always necessarily just about the disease. A lot of times it's about how I want to live my life. I see. So what would you tell someone who perhaps may be listening, Sue, and has that uneasiness with what they're being told by their doctor and they don't know what to say or what to do? What would you, what what advice do you have? I, I think there's a personality that plays into this. Um, I, I think that if you know, if you feel timid about doing that, if you feel as if it's not something you can do, a lot of people have a lot of anxiety about um, that kind of, you know, confrontation. They feel like it's very confrontational. And some doctors will, you know, I think intimidate patients in, in that respect. But I think if, if you really feel as if it's not something you can do, find somebody who can, you know, find somebody that you know that can go with you to an appointment and um, ask the questions you want to ask. If you feel timid about asking them, have someone do that. And then, you know, I think once that rapport is established, it would be a lot easier for them for you to speak up. Um, it, I, I, I feel for people that, that feel really timid about doing th- this sort of thing who really just, they just want to, they just want to desperately cross their oncologist and say, I'm just going to do what he says or she says because, you know, I want to believe that they, they know all there is to know. And the truth of the matter is they don't know all there is to know. They don't really know what the surgical consult is going to, the result of that's going to be or the radiologist or uh, clinical trial or any of that. I mean, you, you really kind of have to be able to feel confident exploring those things on your own, unfortunately. That's great advice. Thanks for sharing it. And currently, you are going through a clinical trial, if I'm using the right term. Am I saying that right? Okay, talk about that. Yeah, um, to fill in the blank here, I, I, was, I had a recurrence after my four years NED. I had a recurrence in my lungs. And so for the past few years, I've been using a combination of stereotactic body radiation and chemotherapy and breaks. And the breaks, I think, have been really important, too, just as important as the treatment. Um, to keep me going. Uh, in the past few months, uh, I, I decided that I was really ready to try something new. Uh, I've done all the drugs and I um, feel as if, you know, I, I really would like to improve my quality of life. So I have been watching this particular drug uh, for the past year or so, kind of paying attention because I saw that it was being fast-tracked. It doesn't really have a name yet. It's called TAS. PAS-102, uh, and when it, it uh, went through clinical trial, it went, it went really quickly. Um, they they uh, got a fast-track designation really really early on, and um, so this January it became approved for expanded use, which it does, it, it is still in the clinical trial phase, um, but it's not a one, two, or three. It's, it, it's, they used to call it compassionate use, so it's available at certain places. Um, and you can, you know, if you get accepted into that study, um, you can, you can receive it. And that's what I've done. I, I go to Yale once a month to get this drug. And how is it administered and what is the protocol? It's a pill, which, uh, which right away to me is, is, um, a lot more pleasant than an infusion. Uh, there's my previously, I, 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 you know, used the, 
5 FU pump, and so there's no, none of that. It's a pill that I take in the morning uh, with a meal and in the evening with a meal. Um, it's a pill that you, is administered five days on, two days off, another five days on, and then two weeks off. And right now I'm in the middle of my first week off. Uh, so to, to date, I mean, I've only had done one round of this, so I really can't tell you whether, you know, the, how effective it's going to be in terms of my disease or even, you know, whether the side effects are going to, you know, become cumulative and worse later. But uh, right now, I know that the side effects that I've had from this treatment are um, much better in terms of, you know, my mobility and being able to do things, you know, I'm a really active person and um, it's been a lot easier to manage than what I had been doing previously. So I'm really hopeful that stay this way. I, I really hope it will be effective and I'll be able to stay on it. Great. Uh, as we as we kind of get near the end of our conversation, something really jumped out at me that you shared with me, and it's a constant theme that I'm hearing from so many survivors. In one way or another, people talk about how life in some ways has improved since their diagnosis and you went so far when we spoke earlier to say that if you had to do it over again you would and that just absolutely fascinated me so what does the if the pre-cancer sue could see sue today what does she see so different Really, there's a number of things that are different, and I mean, I think it really changes how you approach your relationships with people. Um, you know, you're you're willing to dive deeper into those relationships. You appreciate them obviously more than you had before. Um, just my my connection to the world in general, and and being part of um, the natural world. I, I I think that that's really true. That I am a quite quite different person. Uh, now than I was before I was diagnosed. Um, I, I've grown in a lot of ways spiritually uh, that I I don't think that I would have explored before. Um, I I feel like a, a person now that you know if I were to leave the world now I would feel satisfied with uh, my life and I don't know that I would have felt that way before this diagnosis. So that it is a pretty profound change I think. Um, and I think it's one of the best things that's happened to me is that I truly can, most of the time, I'm not saying I don't have my dark days, but most of the time, I truly can live in a world with uncertain, total uncertainty and be comfortable with it. Someone will be listening to this podcast, Sue, that either they themselves or someone they care about recently was diagnosed what message would you share with that person that's just getting that difficult news? Well, I think, you know, certainly it would depend, and it's funny because one of my best friends just told me yesterday that she was diagnosed with stage 3 lung cancer, so I actually was on the phone last night doing this. Um, I think it certainly depends on their diagnosis. If it's an early-stage cancer and they're going to be able to, you know, sort of talk through the treatments and move on, uh, I, you know, it's gonna, that's a, a different message than if you're someone who is telling me that you have metastatic cancer. Um, I think the more difficult, obviously, the more difficult diagnosis, I think my message that I 
sort of preach over and over again is, you know, don't listen to those statistics. They're by nature, uh, you know, they're five years old. Um, don't listen to someone, don't allow someone to tell you that you can't be treated, you can't be cured, that you have a limited amount of time, because no one knows that. And uh, I would, you know, say go out and, and find uh, find your life. Uh, you know, don't allow this to be something that um, takes over and takes you down, because it doesn't have to. Uh, there are all kinds of things out there that that are being offered to people now, and there's a, I, I believe, a paradigm shift happening right now in the field of oncology, where um, we're going to see some really new things in the next five to ten years, and um, there's no reason why you can't live with this disease. I mean, I'm a prime example of someone who does. I mean, there's no reason why you should accept the death penalty. Well, Sue, I really appreciate you taking the time to share your personal story. Uh, I'm sure other people that will listen will find inspiration and support and guidance from it, and I wish you all the best. Thanks, Sue. Thanks again for listening to today's episode of the Colon Cancer Podcast. Notes from the show can be found on our website at thecolancancerpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the podcast by searching for the Colon Cancer Podcast on iTunes or through the podcast app on your iPhone and clicking the subscribe button. You can also find our show on Stitcher Radio for those of you using an Android device. If you or a loved one have any questions at all regarding colon cancer, please visit the Colon Cancer Alliance website at myccasupport.org. Again, that's myccasupport.org. You can also email your questions to us at info at thecoloncancerpodcast.com. Again, that's info at thecoloncancerpodcast.com. Thanks again for listening. Be well, everyone.